I'm Joel Parker. And I'm Chip Granditz. This is How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. Today is Tuesday, December 27th, 2016. Coming up, a special edition of How on Earth, our year-end show reviewing some of the features from 2016. For this last How on Earth show of 2016, we thought we would highlight some of the topics and interviews that we've had over the past year. Now, this isn't intended to be a top 10 biggest news stories of 2016, but is rather a small selection by the How on Earth team of some of the past episodes and features that seemed important or that we simply liked. So we'll play some excerpts from those shows today. But you can find the full episodes and all the past editions of our show in the archives at howonearthradio.org. First up, a recurring theme on our show is our special series titled Our Microbes Ourselves, which include many features that looked at the human interaction and dependence with the microscopic microbe world, both external and internal to our bodies. Our feature in that series was How on Earth's Susan Moran's interview with Ed Young, a staff writer for The Atlantic. Young's book, I Contain Multitudes, The Microbes Within Us and a Grander View of Life, explores the role that invisible yet mighty microbes play in our lives, as well as the lives of so many species with whom they have co-evolved. Young highlights the research of many scientists in this emerging field who are studying how our gut microbiome influences our brain chemistry and our overall mental and physical health. In this clip, Susan and Ed talk about why this diversity is so important and how we and other species have co-evolved with these mighty creatures. It's important to remember that the microbiome, like any ecosystem, like a forest or like a coral reef, has resilience to it. It can absorb a certain number of knocks before it becomes permanently dented. And the same is true for, um, for the communities of microbes that live inside us. And I'm fascinated with the co-evolutionary aspects of this, of our relationship. So why do we rely on bacterial cues for our own existence? For instance, to make chemical signals and all sorts of things that we apparently depend on them to do. Yeah, it seems weird, doesn't it, that we should rely on bacteria in order to do really fundamental things like build our bodies and train our immune systems. But I think that's looking at it the wrong way. I Mm. think we have to remember that humans and other animals evolved in a world that was already dominated by and full of bacteria. So why have we outsourced parts of our lives to them? We had absolutely no choice in the matter. It was almost inevitable. They were already there in the world, and it just made sense for us to respond to their cues, to use their presence and the molecules they produced in order to shape our very lives. We didn't come into existence in a vacuum, disconnected from the rest of the world. We were Hmm. deeply enmeshed in the world right from the start, and that world was a microbial one. 
In fact, it seems we should, I don't know, sort of alter our semantics as well as our psychological and perhaps even spiritual understanding of I. I am we, right? And always was. Very much so. Um, Pronouns were a difficult thing when (laughs) writing this book um, because clearly any definition of an individual, any concept of I or the self, takes a bit of a hammering when you consider microbes in the picture. You could think about an anatomical definition where, like, me is everything in my own body, and yet my own body is largely composed of cells that aren't to do with me. You can maybe take a genomic definition where I am everything that carries my DNA. And yet those same microbes have their own genes, which make important contributions to my life. Um, So every definition we can think of through which we separate ourselves as individuals from the rest of the world is actually deeply complicated by the presence of these microbes that so intimately affect our lives. In another episode of the Our Microbes Ourselves series, we explored a new study that adds to a growing body of research into the benefits of certain soil and gut microbes on our mental and physical health. Susan Moran talked to Dr. Christopher Lowry, an associate professor of integrative physiology at the University of Colorado at Boulder, about the study that shows how a common soil bacterium can boost the immune system to help fight stress and inflammation. In this clip, Dr. Lowry talks about a particular example in the case of tuberculosis. So we conducted studies in mice, and the studies involved immunization with a, a bacterium that was isolated from soil in Africa and Uganda around Lake Kioga. This particular species is called Mycobacterium vacci. Uh, vacci after cow because this particular species was originally isolated from cow dung and this is a heat killed version of the bacterium and so what we're trying to do is use this as an antigen to affect the immune system so antigen how does that work so the immune system recognizes particular molecules in bacteria uh, the immune system, the, the cells of the immune system have receptors on their surface that recognize very specific molecules in bacteria. And we're taking advantage of that uh, property of these bacteria. Uh, essentially, they're a polyantigenic substance, meaning they have many antigens on their surface and even inside uh, the bacteria be- because the immunization that we're using is a whole heat-killed preparation. It's the whole bacterium. It's just not alive. The bacteria are killed with heat, uh, but otherwise they're intact. So I'm so curious, before asking more about the methodology, how did this come to be known in Uganda, Africa, and in cow dung? I mean, who went searching for it, or did they inadvertently find it? It wasn't inadvertent, actually. It's a very interesting story. My colleague Graham Rook is an immunologist at UCL, University of College London, and his colleague, John Stanford, they're both immunologists at UCL. They realized that the success of vaccination against tuberculosis varied dramatically depending on geography. So in other words, there were some geographical regions where the vaccines were very successful, other regions where they were not successful at all. And so they went to an area where the vaccines were very successful around Lake Kyoga in Uganda with the intention of trying to understand what environmental factors in this particular geographical region 
are contributing to the success of the vaccines. And when they got there, they found that the shores of the lake, Lake Kyoga, were, were lined with this orange slime. And the orange slime turned out to be Mycobacterium bacchi. So that's fascinating in and of itself. But then how do you tease that out from gazillion other environmental and perhaps genetic? Well, I think it was perhaps just luck. <laughs> but I think they also had some intuition because Mycobacterium bacchi is in the same genus as Mycobacterium tuberculosis that causes TB. Aha. And so they share many antigens. It's polyantigenic. Many of those antigens are the same. So it boosts the efficacy of the vaccine against the targeted bacterium. So does that mean it actually has already boosted their immune system to make them less susceptible it, to TB? In, in people that have TB, it, it stimulates the immune system to be more aggressive in attacking the tuberculosis bacterium. Fascinating. So it's this sort of cohabitation. Uh, it's a shared evolutionary history between the two species. And because they have this shared history, they share certain antigens that, or molecules that have similar amino acid sequences or other similar properties that allow the immune system to recognize them. And it, uh, it boosts the parts of the immune system that are effective in, in fighting off the tuberculosis bacterium. Those snippets are just a couple examples from Hell on Earth's special series called Our Microbes, Ourselves. Through 2017, we will continue to bring to you conversations with scientists, authors, and others about this burgeoning but still very young field of research. Back in August, How on Earth's Beth Bennett produced a show exclusively dedicated to news and recent research about the Zika virus. That show included, included two interviews with researchers who described aspects of the viral life cycle, including transmission, symptom variability, and promising avenues leading to potential treatments and preventions. In this clip, Beth talks to Dr. Ann Power from the CDC about the Zika virus. Zika virus is something that's definitely on everybody's mind right now. Um, it's a mosquito-transmitted virus, primarily, and it's very closely related to other viruses like dengue virus or West Nile virus, which people in the Americas have certainly heard about. Um, it's unusual in that it causes these very severe birth defects, which we've not seen with any of the related flaviviruses before, and Zika is a member of what's called the flaviviridae group. So. We are trying to understand exactly why it's causing this and um, being able to diagnose cases very readily um, because most people who get infected with Zika will not even know they were sick. Um, about 80% of the people are asymptomatic, show no signs or symptoms, and only about 20% actually do get sick. Those who do usually get a very mild illness. It's a mild fever, very low-grade fever. They might have joint pain. They might have what's called conjunctivitis, where their eyes get red. Um, but they're mild symptoms, and they usually pass within just a few days. They'll get a rash. Um, again, the real problem is for women who are pregnant, because the virus can actually cross from the mom to the baby through the placenta. And if the baby gets infected at certain points during the um, pregnancy cycle, it can actually cause these very severe birth defects, one of which is called microcephaly, where the head of the baby is actually much smaller than it should be. And 
going along with that, of course, is very severe neurologic deficits. They have um, developmental problems and such. So um, it is quite significant in that particular population, yet in most people it causes no problems at all. And so it doesn't matter if you are an asymptomatic um, infected individual, you could still pass that virus on to somebody and they could get extremely sick, or if they were a pregnant woman, their child, their unborn child could become microcephalic. That's all true. So even if you're showing no symptoms, if you get bit by a mosquito that can take the virus up in, and then the virus has to go through the mosquito and be transmitted by the mosquito, um, it can still be passed on even if you never showed any symptoms. Now, there's a lot of things we don't know about Zika that we're still trying to figure out. For example, if you're a pregnant woman and do become infected, what is the odds or the likelihood that your baby would become infected? And if your baby does become infected, which is probably a small percent, what is the likelihood that it would have some kind of developmental problem? So there's a lot of things we're still trying to understand to really ascertain what the risk is. Um, And every day we get a little bit more information. So uh, we update our website daily, cdc.gov, www.cdc.gov. And you can basically go on there and check. If you look on that first page, there'll be a big Zika banner. And literally daily, there's updates on what we know about Zika. And Beth also talked with Dr. Rashika Ferrara of CSU about what the virus needs to replicate and how it evades detection from the immune system. Many of these viruses, they don't package much in their shells. It's outside of a host, outside of the mosquito or uh, outside of the human, it's basically almost uh, non-functional or inert. But once it gets inside the host, it needs a lot of nutrients, for instance, to compete with the immune system of the host, etc. And it needs a lot of lipids to uh, replicate in the host. And this is true of the virus replicating in the human as well as in the mosquito. And what's amazing is that some of these requirements are the same in the mosquito versus the human, and some of them are different. So we're really interested in looking at this in detail. So if you look at an infected cell, for instance, with these viruses, they cause a severe rearrangement of the inside of the cell. So it looks very different to a cell that's not infected. And many of these changes are associated with membranes in the cell. And these viruses are membrane viruses, so they acquire a membrane from the host, uh, the human or the mosquito. But uh, it seems like it changes all a lot of the lipid repertoire inside the human cell or the mosquito cell in order to replicate and to pr- provide these membranes. And the idea, part of the idea is that it wants to hide from the immune system. Yes. And part... Part of the idea is that it wants to use some of these membranes to make new virus particles. And so does the fact that the Zika virus uses some of our membranes, then that allows it to evade our immune system because it looks like our cells? Right. um, For the most part, it's the immune system, you know, detects, uh, say, when a virus enters a cell, there's signals that go off saying there's a foreign uh, agent inside the cell, and then the immune system immediately gets activated. But 
what the virus is doing is once it gets inside a cell, if it hides in these membranes, the immune system can't detect it. So that signal or that red light saying there's a foreign agent inside your cell doesn't go off. One of the most significant news stories this year in physics was the announcement of the first detection of gravitational waves. The detection was made by the LIGO project, which stands for Laser Interferometer Gravitational Wave Observatory. This confirmation of general relativity provides a new way to view the universe. Back in February, I had the opportunity to talk with Dr. Matthew Evans from MIT, who describes that detection and why this is such a significant achievement. So we often listen to the output of our detectors in the control room where we operate the detectors, and they have this sort of nice uh, humming background noise. If you had been listening carefully in the control room on September 14th, you would have heard a little uh, thump go by. And maybe it wasn't anything noteworthy if you're just there listening to the speaker, but it was the same thump which happened in Hanford as in Livingston, uh, Louisiana. And the, the result of that is that this thump was our first sound, if you will, coming from outer space and hitting the Earth and being read out by these two detectors. So what we measured was a gravitational wave arriving at the Earth, and it actually came from a pair of very large black holes, so not supermassive like in the middles of galaxies, but about 30 times the mass of our sun, which were going around each other about 100 times a second before they ran into each other and produced this burst of gravitational waves which then propagated across the universe for about a billion years before passing through the Earth and making this uh, thumping sound. How were these observed waves or this waveform translated into things like the mass before and the mass after the merger? And it, it seems like there were maybe a couple different phases of this waveform corresponding to different phases of the evolution of this binary black hole. Yeah, that's right. So. The three phases are the in-spiral phase, where the system spends millions of years uh, slowly losing energy to gravitational waves. And at the end of that, the black holes have gotten close enough to each other that they start moving very quickly and losing energy very rapidly. And that brings them to what's called the merger phase. And this is the point where the two black holes essentially touch each other and then merge into one larger black hole. And in the process, they put out a burst of gravitational wave radiation, uh, which is really that last phase is the part that we detect with uh, LIGO. And then there's a third phase, which is called the ring down, and that's just the new black hole settling down after this cataclysmic event into uh, just a perfect sphere again, as you would imagine black holes are. Or I guess since it's spinning, it would be an ellipsoid. But, but that's it settling down to the new, more massive black hole. So there are three phases, and we detect the end of the in-spiral phase along with the merger and some amount of the ring down phase. Throughout the year, we had many features about climate change, including how cutting down trees at the edge of a forest puts climate change on steroids and may spell disaster for heat-sensitive animals, fracking's effect on the atmosphere and other parts of the environment, and interviews with scientists who fly a plane through huge methane gas leaks. We've had presenters from the Paris Climate Talks, 
a marine ecologist who investigates how rising atmospheric carbon dioxide affects marine ecosystems, and discussions about the recent increase in political issues and pressures regarding climate change research. But our features also included discussion of proactive ideas about dealing with carbon pollution, including this interview with Kendra Kruger of author Eric Toonsmeyer about the carbon farming solution, starting with a description of what it means to sequester carbon with plants. It's sort of like I, I ask people to try and remember back vaguely to high school biology when we learned about photosynthesis. And that's the thing where plants uh, use sunlight and water um, uh, and carbon dioxide to make sugars. And from those sugars, they make all these other compounds um, like, you know, cellulose and things like that. But the key piece there is that they take carbon dioxide from the atmosphere, which is what we have too much of. It's one of the prime causes of, of climate change. It's excess carbon dioxide. They take that carbon dioxide and they, um, they uh, break off the carbon and use it to make compounds. Um, again, things like cellulose or lignans other, or sugars. Um, and uh, within an hour, that, some of that carbon, uh, 10 to 14% of those sugars are exuded by the roots of the plants and go right away into the soil to feed different kinds of microorganisms in the soil. So some of it gets into the soil right away. Some of it stays in the tissue of the plant, and if it's a perennial plant, like a tree or a perennial grass, then then it'll stay there as long as that lives. So like at where you are a, a pine tree or something, it's going to live a long time. And as long as that pine tree is alive, the carbon is going to stay present in that tree. So it's sort of a win-win solution. Yeah, and the, the, that's two-way street that it, we have the potential to harvest a lot of that carbon in the landmass, but by removing, burning things and doing deforestation, we're releasing that carbon back into the atmosphere, right? So Yes. It, All of these things are like a few steps forward and a few steps back. Well, you can plant nitrogen-fixing plants, and they will increase the rate of photosynthesis and every, the rate of biomass production, which is awesome, but then they also give off some nitrous oxide gas. And you can use cows to do some really cool things, but they also give off methane. So all these things have their little pros and cons. So transport was the area where I really wanted to look very deeply because you hear such really contrasting claims. You hear the local food movement saying, we're the best thing for the climate and food miles are terrible. And you hear some sort of scientists and conservatives saying, well, local food is actually much worse than going to the supermarket. And I thought, well, how could all these these things can't all be true, and my goal with the book is to teach the controversy where controversy exists, and this was a clear, if this, say, industrial produce is moving a greater distance and maybe doing it more efficiently, and we see that in a lot of studies, food in the supermarket actually has less of a carbon footprint than uh, driving out to the farm and getting food at a farm stand, which seems ridiculous. What it really points to is that the food, that our transportation system is in as much need of overhaul as our agricultural system. <laughs> and if you're bringing stuff, in, if people are going to the farm to pick it up, it's less efficient than, than going to the supermarket. But if the farmer delivers it to town for a CSA drop-off or to a farmer's market that people can walk to or bike to or ride a bus to, then that's much better. 
all these clips from today's show are just a sample of the topics that we have brought to you over the year. You can hear more of our past episodes at the archives at howonearthradio.org, where you can find interviews of scientists and science authors about electric cars, electric airplanes, renewable energy, climate change, using the microbiome as an indicator of length of time after death, Stargazing. Pesticides. Life on other planets. Planets around other stars. Stars in other galaxies. Eggs. Plant diversity. Marine animal sex. Wildfires. Recent science graduates describing their thesis work. PTSD. Light pollution. Pollinators. Lead in water supplies. Alzheimer's research. The Rosetta mission. The New Horizons mission. Missions to Mars, past, present, and future. Sleep. Cell phones. And those are just the topics we covered in 2016. We would like to thank all the rest of the How on Earth team for their work and volunteer contributions to this show. I'm Shelley Schlender. I'm Chip Granditz. I'm Kendra Kruger. I'm Joel Parker. I'm Beth Bennett. I'm Tom Yulesman. I'm Jane Palma. I'm Jim Poland. I'm Brianna Draxler. I'm Alejandro Soto. I'm Daniel Glick. I'm Beth Bartelm. I'm Tom McKinnon. I'm Ted Burnham. I'm Susan Moran. And thanks to you, our dedicated listeners, for your support. We look forward to bringing you more science and technology in 2017. That's all for this edition of How on Earth. Our executive producer is Beth Bartell. This week's show was produced and engineered by Joel Parker. Our theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler. Visit our website at howonearthradio.org to find past episodes, extended interviews, and you can subscribe to our podcast through iTunes and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Questions or comments? Call the KGNU comment line at 303 303- 447-9911. For How on Earth, KGNU Science Show, I'm Chip Granditz. And I'm Joel Parker. <laughs>